Okay, hi. Welcome. Welcome to the next two hours of Live God, Talk God TV. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We've got a very, very interesting time uh, lined up for you. We have some two wonderful uh, guests here. I'm going to introduce you straight away to our guests. By the way, my name is Dr. Richard Kent. I'm a retired medical GP. Um, but we've got two wonderful guests, and I'm going to introduce you straight away to Pastor Derek Walker. If you'd like to put the camera on Derek Walker. And uh, first of all, Derek, let me ask you. Um, we've known each other for about 18 years. That's right. And uh, tell me, you've got a lovely wife called Hilary. I don't know if we can put this picture of uh, Derek and Hilary up on the, uh, the PowerPoint picture so we can see what Hilary looks like. But anyway, uh, <laughs> there we are. There's, uh, there's Derek and Hilary, pastors of Oxford Bible Church. And Oxford Bible Church, you have a, a meet, you have a, on Revelation TV, it's every Wednesday at half past eight. Is that right? That's right. We have a regular uh, teaching program on yeah. Revelation TV. How long has that been going on for, Derek? Oh, about three years now. Three we, years, uh, yeah. We started the church 18 years ago. Yeah. And then uh, the Lord led us to... Yeah. To, to TV and to get the word of God out well, further through Revelation. Yeah. And I thank God for Revelation and Genesis <laughs> yes. TV. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I've seen you a lot on television, actually, and some of your teaching is absolutely fantastic. In fact, we're going to be talking some of your wonderful teaching tonight, uh, this afternoon about the chronology of the, of the conception and the birth of Jesus, aren't we, That's later right. on. But before we get to that, we want to know a little bit more about you, actually. <laughs> and Hilary, could you tell us how you first became believers in Jesus? Yes, I, I wasn't brought up in a Christian family. Uh, and then my ambition in life was simply to make it to Oxford, you know, and, yeah. and I did. Yes. And so I came up to Oxford uh, University. And over the holidays, I'd achieved my purpose in life, as it were, to get to Oxford, but I still felt empty inside, and the, still the big questions weren't answered. Sure. And so as I came up what to Oxford... What sort of age were you were we talking about? Well, 18. Now? Yeah, okay. And um, came up to study maths, and um, I had a wonderful time at university, but it was really in my first year at university uh, that I heard the gospel for the first time, that that God was offering me the gift of eternal life through sure. Jesus Christ. And, yeah. and I started thinking, well, I've got to find out if this is true. If this is true, this is so important. Mm. So I started studying the evidence for the resurrection, the, all, the all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And mm. over a matter of a few weeks, I, I became convinced. Mm. And I'm sure it was God who was also showing me that this was true, that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. Amen. And I put my trust in him. And so yeah. that's how I came to the Lord. Roughly at the same time, although I didn't know my wife at the time, Hilary uh, had been afflicted with a terrible sickness, with very serious arthrosis and pain yeah. everywhere in her body. And what sort of arthritis was that, actually? Yeah, was that... Was that I, rheumatoid arthritis? I, I believe that's, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Um, she had pain throughout her body, yeah. and she tells the story very dramatically, and yeah. she really wanted to kill herself. It was so bad, and it seemed right. like the doctors couldn't help her. And Eventually, she was dragged along yeah. to, to a Christian meeting where they prayed for the sick, right. and uh, very reluctantly, <laughs> she, she went along, and again, she heard the gospel, and she heard God whisper in her heart, that this was her last chance, as it were. Right. And um, so she went forward, and she, was, uh, she received the Lord Jesus. And then she was prayed for, and she, she dramatically, the moment that hands were laid upon her, an amazing power, healing power, went right through her body, and 
every she was healed instantly Amazing. all that pain disappeared and uh, you know she had she was catapulted into a new christian life and i think we met about a year later really and uh we started going to the same church we became friends and yeah well the rest is history as they say (laughs) yeah and could you tell us about oxford bible church i think you said it'd be going about 18 years um, after bible school we 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 which bible school did you go to we went to to raymer uh Mm -hmm. in uh, in, in the States and then to the Bob Yandian School of Local Church. We came back and we pioneered the church, starting in our lounge. Yes. In, and uh, we uh, just started with a handful of people. Yes. And, and that was 18 years ago and it's grown since then. And yeah. now we're meeting in Cheney School Hall. Yes. And uh, we're having a great time. We're, we're very international. We have people from all tribes and nations. In the <laughs> we've church. been there, we know. <laughs> and, and we've had you come a number yeah. of times and speak. Yes. So yes. I think how many right. different uh, nationalities are represented? I lost actually. count, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big church, actually, isn't it? it it's grown. It's grown. So, I don't uh, know how many members maybe you have now. I, d- I guess we're about 200, 250, maybe. And you have a very interesting website. Would you like to talk about your website? We've put a lot of teaching on the website. Really, it's yeah. a teaching website. and www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk and right. all the books I write I also put up on the website. Yeah. We just want uh, people to get the Word of God. Mm. We yeah. call it Oxford Bible Church because yeah. we do believe in the move of the Holy Spirit, but Absolutely. we also believe that yeah. the Bible has to be central to yes. everything we do. Absolutely. And so we're, we're a teaching church yes. and we like to teach the Word of God. Well, I know I've been on your website many, many times, and I found it absolutely wonderful resource. And I would encourage any viewers, I really would encourage viewers to get onto that www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk. It's fantastic teaching. In fact, we're going to be talking quite a lot of, uh, of, of Derek's wonderful teaching this afternoon. Uh, before we uh, move on um, to talk about Derek's teaching, I just want to introduce my other guest, who I know very well, because she's my wife. <laughs> okay. And here, here's my wife. Um, her name is Val. Um, if you'd like to look into that camera over there and say hello to everybody. Hello, <laughs> lovely to be here this afternoon. <laughs> now, Val is uh, very interested in the Jewish roots of Israel, and uh, she's going to be talking a little bit about Hanukkah this afternoon because Hanukkah is closely related to Christmas, and this is a Christmas program. Uh, but also, Val's had a very dramatic healing, and we're going to be talking about that too. So, in about um, after a little bit of Bible teaching from um, Roger, uh, from Derek, <laughs> I got two very close friends who are both very good Bible teachers. One is Roger French, who's going to be on in two weeks' time, and the other one is, uh, is Derek Walker, who's with us now. They're both equally good Bible teachers, the best Bible teachers that I know, actually. Um, so we're going to talk straight away to uh, Derek about um, chronology, and he, we've got some PowerPoint to show you. Um, but just a little bit more, have you got anything more you want to tell us about Oxford Bible Church and your website before we start talking about the, the birth and the conception of Jesus? Well, some of the stuff we'll talk about, they'll find on the website Yes. Uh, and a lot of other things as well, So, <laughs> as well as information about the church, um, teachings on all kinds of things. But yeah. they can, if they search under Bible chronology, they'll find quite a lot of information. I think because I studied maths at university, I, was going to ask I you kind of that. got led in that direction. Yeah. Um, because I found that there's a lot of numbers in the Bible. Certainly. Most people avoid it because to be, there's this thing called fear of maths. 
sure. that many people are scared of numbers, so they, they avoid that. But mm-hmm. the fact is, God put a lot of numbers in the Bible, a lot mm-hmm. of chronology. And to me, I study it most of all because it reveals the glory of God, yes. the majesty of God. You know, God is not making things up as he goes along. Mm. You know, God is the Alpha and the Omega. He starts at the beginning of time and he's at the end of time. Yeah. And his plans are working out through time. And God... Yeah. Uh, is working to a timetable. He has a plan and a purpose. He has appointments with destiny that uh, that he's working out. And Bible chronology really reveals how God is working his purposes out sovereignly. Sure. And and he is sovereign over time. Sure. And and you see that in the feasts of uh, Israel, which is which we're going to specific times. Yeah, yeah, there are specific times. Yeah. And God is saying, I there are specific dates when I'm going to act and manifest myself. Sure. And and, and the, the feasts are appointed times. Sure. Christ died on Passover, and and so to in, to search this out is, is a wonderful thing, and and to discover from all the clues in the Bible, I believe you can put together the whole chronology of the Bible and all the great events of the Bible can be discovered with a bit of in- investigation. You know, mm. it's the glory of God to to conceal a matter, but it's our honor. <laughs> just to search them out, and, and that's what I love to do. Now, just before we get stuck into this amazing chronology, because I've seen this teaching, it's absolutely wonderful. <coughs> um, I know you're a mathematician. Um, what happened after you left university? You finished university? Well, I, yes, I did my uh, degree, and then I went into teaching. Did you? My first job. Right. A few years of teaching as a kind of preparation. Mathematics? Teaching mathematics, sure. yes. And that was really just a preparation, though, for yeah, for for, for what I was to do, what I'm doing now. Right. Yeah. Well, let's move straight on in, and we're going to look at the we're going to look straight at the um, uh, Derek's fantastic teaching. I'm going to start with looking at some slides, and I'm just going to um, op- operate <coughs> the the little laptop we've got here, and Derek's going to do all the talking because it's his teaching. So off you go, Derek. It's well, we're, to we're we're coming to the Christmas season, aren't we? Yeah. And so, um, what a good time to talk about. The fact, actually, uh, you may not realize it, that really, I think most people accept that uh, Jesus wasn't really born on Christmas, what we call Christmas Day, December the 25th. Um, in fact, I want to show you how we can work out from the Bible when Jesus was born. And uh, there it is. Actually, he was born in October, uh, that, and I believe in October 2 BC. Um, that's October the 12th. You might think uh, 2 BC, what's that about? Well, actually, the early church historians all agree that that's when he was born in, in about 2 BC. How do we know it's that? Well, because of the feasts. Um, all the major events of his life, you see, are, are divine appointments. His birth, his baptism, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of his spirit. These all happened on feast days because these feast days were meant to be prophetic of the coming Messiah. So we know he died, he, you know, he died at Passover. He rose at first fruits. The Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so we would surely expect his birth also to take place on a feast day. And in fact, the scripture, in fact, practically tells us that, that Jesus was born at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was at the, uh, the seventh month of the Jewish year, which is in October usually, September, October time. And um, if let's have a look at John chapter one, verse one, talks about the phases of Jesus' life. First of all, in eternity, the the eternal Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. 
That's a name for Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. There you see Jesus, the eternal Son of God. But then he took on humanity. And he did this. It says the Word became flesh. He took upon himself a human nature. And that speaks of his conception in, in the womb of Mary, his miraculous conception. And then it says he was born. And it describes his birth as that he dwelt among us. Literally, that is, that he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us, and it's the word used for the glory of God in, in the tabernacle. And so he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, what we're talking about there is that it basically says Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles in his birth. You see, Tabernacles is the feast that celebrates God's glory living in man. God living in man. That's God's ultimate purpose. Right. The Solomon's temple, when the glory filled the temple, yeah. that happened at Tabernacles. Yeah. And so, of course, Jesus' birth, when the divine nature became united to the human nature, uh, there in the incarnation, what a, that's a Tabernacles mm. event. And so, Jesus was born at Tabernacles, as John 1.14 says. And uh, also, he was baptized at Tabernacles. You'll see that on the next slide as well. Because if you read Luke 3, 21, it took, describes his baptism. And at his baptism is when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Again, this is a tabernacles event. The glory of God upon the temple. God's temple, which is man. And it describes his baptism. And then in verse 23, it, say, it that gives the date for it. It says, and this is how it reads literally, not all the translations reflect this, but literally it says, Jesus himself began to be about, and the word about with a number always means exactly, Jesus himself began to be exactly 30 years of age. This was his 30th birthday when he was baptized. So since he was born at Tabernacles, he was also baptized exactly 30 years later at Tabernacles. And, 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 uh, if we go forward, we know that his ministry lasted three and a half years. Now, three, Tabernacles is the 15th of the seventh month. So if you go forward three and a half years exactly, that takes you to Passover, which is the 14th day of the first month of the year. Three and a half years. And that's when Jesus died. Exactly three and a half years from his baptism, he died on the cross at Passover. And so Jesus, you see, was exactly 33 and a half years old on the Jewish calendar when he died. And what does that mean? If we can work out when Jesus died, which we can, we can go back 33 and a half years and we can know exactly when he was born. And, uh, and so let's do that, shall we, quickly. Um, Jesus died at Passover, we know that. And we can also show that it was April the 1st, A.D. 33. And the way I want to prove this to you might be a new way. Uh, people argue this from different angles, but I want to show you something that might be a little different to what you've heard, you know. That there are two signs in the heavens that God gave that actually fix astronomically when Jesus died on the cross. 
And I want to take us here to uh, Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached at the day of Pentecost. And he stood up, and his whole sermon was based on a prophecy by Joel, in Joel chapter 2. And he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Yes. Of course, we all know this prophecy. Mm. You know, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And we say, yes, it was fulfilled. But if you actually read what Peter quoted as being fulfilled, there's a lot more than just the Spirit being poured out. And we kind of brush that aside and say, well, that isn't fulfilled yet. And yet I'm saying to you, this whole prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost. It's, let's read it. It shall come to pass afterwards, says God, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, that's what happened on the earth. And then it talks about the signs, two signs in the heavens. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And, and Peter is saying this was all fulfilled. He describes a sequence of events that, will, that was fulfilled. And the people who listened to him on the day of Pentecost, they knew it had been fulfilled. You see, he says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, literally the great and manifest day of the Lord, or the great day of God's, of the Messiah's manifestation in glory, he says there, before that day, there are two signs in the heavens, two signs in the sky. And then comes the great and manifest day of the Lord when he'll be manifested in his glory. Well, that happened at his resurrection, didn't it? And then it says afterwards he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Peter stood there and he said these signs have been fulfilled. The sun was turned to darkness, wasn't it, on the day of the cross. Then Christ was manifested as the Messiah the risen Christ, and then the Spirit of God was poured out. Peter was saying, you know, folks, all these things came to pass. And this proves that the Spirit of God has been poured out freely to all people so that all people can be saved uh, upon request. If they will just call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved because God's Spirit has been poured out. You can receive the gift of the Spirit because it's given to all flesh through the cross. Now, that means, if that's true, then the two signs in the heavens had to be fulfilled at the cross. And then Jesus rose from the dead. Well, let's have a look at these two signs. Did, were they fulfilled? The sun to darkness and the moon to blood. Well, what does that mean? What about the sign in the sun? Well, we know, don't we? You can read the Gospels. It says, at noon, darkness came over the earth. The sun was blotted out. Super, this was a supernatural thing. For three hours the sun was blotted out. This couldn't be an eclipse. Um, the secular historians also recorded this event. And they even tell us that the stars could be seen. It was a unique day. Which means it wasn't just a dust cloud. This was a supernatural blotting out of the sun. Signifying it. Why was it a sign? It was signifying that the Son of God, as it were, was bearing our sins, taking the darkness of our sin. He who is the radiant, glorious one, is being, as it were, blotted out with our sin. That's what he was doing on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was shown by the sign of the sun. And an interesting thing is, in, in our next slide, is a quote from one of these historical records, Phlegon's Olympiades, that actually gives the year 
that this happened. He says in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, and if you, if you can see that chart below, you'll see that actually that lick puts it in AD 33. And it says there was a great eclipsing of the sun, greater than any had been known before, for at the sixth hour, that's noon, the day was changed into night, and the stars were seen in the heavens, and it also says there was an earthquake. And the Gospels record a great earthquake throughout the whole region. That explains the fire and the vapors of smoke arising in the atmosphere at that time. The sign in the earth, by the way, is blood. You see, a sign signifies something significant going on. What was the significant blood, the death that was going on at this time? It was the blood of Jesus being shed on the cross, signifying that our eternal redemption was being paid for. And there was fire and vapor of smoke as this great earthquake was spewing up gases into the atmosphere and in the heavens, darkness. But what about this moon turning to blood? I miss this for so long. The moon turning to blood. Well, we might think, well, how can the moon turn to blood? Well, this is a well-known figure of speech for a lunar eclipse. And this is what helps us to date it. Now, it's just by the fact of the sun turning to darkness, we know the year that happened, AD 33. We know Passover that year was April the 1st. So that, that should be enough. But God gives us two witnesses, the sign in the sun and the sign in the moon. And lunar eclipses don't happen that much. On a lunar eclipse, you see, the shadow of the earth, the alignment means the shadow of the earth the sh uh, across the moon creates a reddish appearance. If there is dust in the atmosphere, like an earthquake, that redness is increased greatly. Now, what this is saying is, on the day of the cross, we would expect there to be a lunar eclipse visible from Jerusalem. If that actually happened, a dramatic moon turning to blood, on the same day as the sun turning to darkness, before the Lord was manifested in his resurrection glory, no wonder when Peter stood up with the Spirit poured out on all flesh, he could honestly say, you know, folks, all these things have happened. Can you imagine, seven weeks before, the sun blotted out. That's dramatic. And then at moonrise, a few hours later, the moon arises blood red for them all to see. That would have had such an effect. And Peter is saying, this has been fulfilled. And now Jesus is risen from the dead. He must be the Messiah. And now he's poured out his spirit. And all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, you can probably guess where I'm going with this. We, can, we have the astronomical knowledge now to look up the tables and you can check it out for yourself. When was there a lunar eclipse at a Passover visible from Jerusalem? There's only one date in the time of Jesus when that actually happened. April the 1st, 1833. On the very same day, the moon turned, the sun turned to darkness. The moon literally turned to blood and as it rose above the horizon, it was blood red on that day. God was giving a sign confirming the blood on the earth. He was showing a sign of blood on the moon. He's saying, this is the blood of my son for you, for your salvation. And so we know when the crucifixion took place, April the 1st, AD 33. But 
what do we do now? Well, all we have to do now is go back 33 and a half years, and that takes us to 2 BC. Right. Okay? 30, remember, there is no year zero. And so I put to you that Jesus was born at Tabernacles 2 BC, which happens to be October the 12th on our calendar. And so uh, this is when Jesus was born. And I want to show you there was also a sign that God put in the heavens for Jesus' birth, which is uh, interesting to me. You see, a Feast of Trumpets that year, the way the feasts work, trumpets is the feast of announcement. It's the warning call. Say, get ready, because the major feasts are about to happen. You need to be ready. And, and so trumpets is an announcing feast. And so at trumpets, we might expect God to give another sign announcing the imminent birth of the Messiah. And in fact, we find that. Scripture gives us a sign in the heavens, a, a rare alignment in the, in, the, uh, in the sky of the sun, moon, and stars at that year. And, and we'll show you a picture of that right now. You can check this out, by the way, on stellarium.org. And um, if you want software that can recreate the positions of the stars back thousands of years, it will show you this. And uh, there's a very interesting alignment here. There's in the star constellations, uh, Virgo, the Virgin, is shown giving birth to the sit to the promised seed. And uh, we're going to see this is the picture at Trumpets 2 BC, and you'll notice the moon under her feet. Why is that significant? Notice, you'll see also the picture of the sun in Virgo. Now, we're not talking about astrology here, don't get worried. But God, it does say in Genesis that God created the stars for signs and for seasons. And so God uses the stars sometimes to confirm things. Now, let's turn to Revelation 12 and we'll see where this is indicated. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, in the, in the sky. A woman, okay, we know what that is, clothed with the sun. The woman represents Israel. She's clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet. And this is actually describing a particular configuration of the heavens. And on her head a garland of twelve stars. She being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain. She's about to give birth. And this is a picture, if you, I'm sure you know, of the Messiah about to be born. But it relates it to this sign in the heavens. Notice, it then describes the dragon who tries to kill the child. And then it describes that the child is actually born. Now, let's have a look at the picture again. I want you to see in that picture that the sun is in Virgo. This is it signifying that the Messiah is about to be born. Notice the moon is right under her feet. This happened just before Jesus' birth. And so what God was actually saying, even in the sign in the heavens at that time, that his Messiah was about to be born, the promised seed who would crush the devil under her foot. This is a very rare occurrence, and it happened just as the, Rev as the Bible describes. And so here we have the birth of Jesus. But actually the greatest miracle is when Jesus was conceived, because that's when the Word was actually made flesh. Well, 
I'm, I'm really talking to the expert here, but no, no, you're not. Uh, you're a can, human, you're doing a human. Uh, it's 280 days. Um, that's my studies have shown. You're right. the, the the human gestation period, the period of a pregnancy, okay. is 280 days. So, Jesus, being perfect man, I think it's a fair assumption to say he he was in the womb for 280 days. Now we get something interesting, and this. You might say, well, if you're saying Christmas is really in October, that's kind of spoiling it for us. Well, I'm just giving you a different way to think about this season. Because if we go back 280 days, we get something interesting. 280 days back to, from Tabernacles takes us to the date of Jesus' um, conception in the womb, when the Word became flesh. It's actually... According to the original calendar used at that time, the Julian calendar, it was January the 6th. Now, it's not quite the same as December the 25th, but it's a bit closer. Um, but January the 6th in church history, in early church history, is a very important date. The church kind of lost track of, of, of it a bit. But the church has always celebrated Epiphany from, of that date. And, and still many of the Eastern churches still do that. They believe the real date is January the 6th. And Epiphany means manifestation. Mm. And it's the feast used to describe the manifestation of Christ. Now sometimes it's applied to his baptism or to when the wise men visited. But the essence of this feast is the incarnation. When God was manifested as a, as a man. And I believe originally that it comes back to the original date of that conception was January the 6th. And that's why the church has kept that ever since. Later on in church history, it seems that the Western church particularly changed the date to December the 25th, perhaps because that was the winter solstice then. And, uh, and so things got a bit distorted in church history. But... The church has preserved January the 6th. But if you want to kind of relate it to now, let me give you one way of thinking about it, all right? The 12 days of Christmas start at December the 25th, right? Mm -hmm. And I won't go into the reasons for that, but if you do that 12-day count, that gets you to January the 6th, all right? That's when Christ was conceived in, in the womb. And so, uh, and that is the great miracle isn't it, that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating, that Jesus was God's gift to man. And so uh, that kind of shows you how we can know that uh, when Jesus was born. That is just astounding, isn't it? That's absolutely amazing, amazing. I, I'm, I'm absolutely staggered by all that teaching of yours. It's just amazing. I hope, I hope your viewers are, are amazed too, because I just think that's absolutely mind-blowing teaching. I've never, I've never heard this teaching before, and, and to me it's staggering. It's all there in the Bible. I know it is. And, uh, can, I can I just mention very quickly that mm. um, if people want more of that, I, I do have a book out on, called Daniel 70 Weeks. So, yeah, tell uh, us more. Tell us more. Um, that 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 deals with because that's one of the great prophecies. Yeah. That actually I show how that actually predicts the date of Christ, right. death and resurrection as well. Right. And but I I throw in some of this other stuff as well. So, yeah. in, anyway, I I I'm, I'm trying to produce books that that 
talk about biblical chronology and I know and you first, mm. not everyone's interested in that but um, anyway well I'm terribly interested in it and <laughs> I just think it's absolutely fascinating I really think it's fascinating well I'll tell you what we're going to do now is poor Derek's going to be doing a great deal of teaching over this two hour period so we're just going to give him a five minute break actually poor chap um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what happened immediately after the conception of Jesus just for about five ten minutes and then we're going to talk uh, to Val and then we're going to come back to hear a great deal more of Derek's amazing teaching. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the actual conception of Jesus, and we've just heard very clearly how we can prove from the scriptures and from the astronomical signs in the heavens that Derek's just been talking about, how we, how we know that Jesus was conceived on January the 6th, 2 BC. All right? And what I want to do now is talk about what actually happened in the immediate two weeks after that. The reason for that is you'll see in a moment something very profound happened, and I want Derek to comment on it as well. Uh, now, of course, um, we all know that Mary visited Elizabeth in late January of 2 BC. Well, Mary visited Elizabeth. We don't know when it was, but now we do know when it was. It happened in 2 BC. And, of course, uh, Mary... Uh, she, many people think she was probably a teenager. She was certainly a virgin. Um, and she was pregnant with Jesus. And we're going to see that probably when Mary met Elizabeth, her cousin, that Jesus was only probably about two weeks old. So here we are in the scriptures. We're told that um, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, that John the Baptist, and said, to, and said that John the Baptist, his cousin, was already six months old. This is what it says in Luke. Thy cousin Elizabeth, this is Gabriel talking, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So actually there were two miracles here. There was the virgin birth of Jesus, because uh, Mary was a virgin, but also Elizabeth was elderly and barren, and she had a miraculous conception as well. So the two most important people in the New Testament, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, were both miraculous conceptions. Would you agree with that, Derek? Yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Okay, so let's just uh, have a look at these slides here. So just um, in January of 2 BC, John the Baptist was already six months old in, in Elizabeth's tummy, and Jesus looked something like that. I don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, that, like but that's what a, um, a baby looks like at conception. All right. Now, in January 2 BC, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Remember in those days, the betrothal period lasts for up to 12 months. They hadn't had what's called the nuptial ceremony, which is what we would call the wedding, but they were engaged, if you like, but it was a very formal engagement. Uh, and they lived in, a, in Nazareth. Now, of course, Nazareth didn't look like the slide here. That's what Nazareth looks like nowadays. And, uh, of course, Derek's taken us to Nazareth, and that's just what it looks like. But I'm, I'm quite sure it didn't look like that then. Um, anyway, um, Gabriel appeared to Mary, and this is what Gabriel said. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. By the way, Luke, of course, was a medical doctor. And a lot of the actual details of the birth of Jesus actually in, in Luke's gospel, because he was a medical doctor. Right. Um, and this, of course, was in fulfillment of the prophecy given in Isaiah 7, verse 14 where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Derek, just remind us, what's that word Emmanuel mean? God with us. 
Thank you. <laughs> God with it's us. It's interesting it says the virgin, Thank not, you. not a virgin. Mm. So, because it relates, because they actually knew more what was going on, because there's a, an ancient prophecy that was known from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, that talks about the Messiah would be the seed of the woman. Yes. And, and he would crush Satan under his foot. Right. And so there was, there was always then this expectation that sometime this great savior would come, mm. who would be a man, but he would have a miraculous birth. He would be the seed of the woman. And so now it's saying the virgin will conceive, you know, the one that was prophesied and uh, bring forth this son who would be called God, God yeah. with us. Thank you. Praise God. See, see, Derek, it's just such an absolute fund of knowledge and information. I mean, we know, we just have, need to have just solid Derek 24 hours a day. He's so good on all this stuff. Uh, I'm just giving him a little bit of a break now because we, he's got so much to say, but I just wanted to have a little bit of a rest while I just talk about this a little bit. But I know he's going to have a comment to make in just a moment. Uh, it says in Matthew 1, these are the facts concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. His mother Mary was engaged to be to be married to Joseph, but while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And it says then, Joseph, her fiancé, being a man of stern principle, decided to break the engagement, but to do it quietly, as he didn't want to public, publicly disgrace her. Well, you can understand that. Um, but, of course, the Holy Spirit was very much in charge of everything, and, of course, um, it says in Matthew 1, verse 20, Joseph lay awake considering this, and he fell into a dream. And here we have dreams and visions again. It's always happening throughout the Old and the New Testament. Joseph fell into this dream, and he saw an angel standing beside him. And this is what the angel said. Joseph, son of David, said the angel, don't hesitate to take Mary, your wife, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So there we are. Very, um, Derek's just said it. Uh, this actually, this conception was a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Now, so that Joseph could, rela could relax. Mary, Mary hadn't <laughs> done anything wrong, uh, and there was no reason to break the engagement. Um, so, uh, and Gabriel said that this, that what was within um, Mary's tummy, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm afraid we talk about fetuses. Well, that's not what the angel said. The angel said this was a child, and that's what I mm. think all babies in the womb should be called, a child. We mm. won't go down that route, but just take on board that babies in tummies are children. All right. And Gabriel referred to this newly conceived baby Jesus as a little child, even though mm. he was only just a newborn baby. Now, what I want to concentrate on now for the next few minutes is what Mary would have felt like at this stage uh, and what would be a natural thing for her to do. Well, um, you probably know that the penalty for basically sex outside marriage, there's no other polite way of putting it, is stoning stoning to death and Mary would have been absolutely terrified in the natural and you can understand that Mary would have been terrified that she would be dragged out and stoned to death because in the New Testament uh, that's what happened to another lady and Jesus of course interrupted the proceedings and we know that story but Mary that um, innocent young lady chosen by God she would have been absolutely terrified that she was about to be stoned to death now think about it what would she do what could she do what would be the obvious thing for her to do? Well, she had a cousin who had, was already um, six months pregnant, and this was another supernatural conception. So what would you do? 
Well, I can't answer the question because I'm a man, but what, let's ask Val, what would you do? <laughs> Look at the camera over there and tell, them, tell, <coughs> tell the viewers, what would you do under the circumstances? Well, um, go and see the doctor, <laughs> <laughs> take advice. <laughs> I think you're going to see Elizabeth, your cousin. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Mary was frightened and the penalty for sex outside marriage was stoning to death. Um, and and uh, so she may have waited till she missed her monthly period, which is how most people... Actually, it doesn't happen anymore. You just take a pregnancy test. But in the old days, when I first became a GP, you, we waited till the first monthly period had been missed. Um, but she may have waited till she missed her first monthly period, which would have been two weeks later, but I suspect she didn't, actually. She probably hot-footed out of town very quickly because she was very frightened. And she went off to see Elizabeth, her cousin, to talk about this miraculous conception. There was only one other person on the planet she knew about who'd had another miraculous conception, and it was Elizabeth. So she would have been... A, she wanted to talk to Elizabeth, and B, she wanted to make sure she wasn't around to be stoned to death. And that's pretty understandable, isn't it? So she urgently wanted to talk to somebody, so she went um, off to Judea, because that's where uh, Elizabeth lived, with Zechariah, uh, in Judea. So Mary went to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, in Judea, probably in January of 2 BC, and I suspect it wouldn't have been very long. So uh, can you give us an idea how far, we, how, how, how far are we talking about from, from Nazareth to... Have you any idea for how far away it would be from Nazareth to where uh, um, Elizabeth and Zechariah would have been living? Perhaps we just don't know. Not just in somewhere. miles, but it would be a few days' travel. A few days' travel. Yeah. Right, so she went a few days' travel. Okay, so what we're going to concentrate now and ask Derek's comment on is in 2 BC, Mary went to see Elizabeth and... Uh, in January of 2 BC, um, or it could have been February 2 BC, but I put to you that it probably wasn't. And remember at this stage that baby Jesus was a little person that, that uh, Gabriel said was uh, a little child and looked something like that at the end of January 2 BC and looked something a little bit like that picture and walked into Elizabeth's house, having traveled these two or three days, whatever it was, and the first thing that happened, we're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, it says, and it says, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe, that's of course uh, uh, John the Baptist, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So babe, the baby John leapt in the womb, and Elizabeth, the mum, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, what having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, she's about to say something very profound. Remember that baby John was at least six months old in the womb, and she was, um, was described as a baby who was so excited he leapt for joy. So I've always said, actually, in my GP days, um, I said, you know, little babies in mummy's tummies, they get very used to the sound of mummy's voice. That's why baby knows mummy very well, because mummy's baby's been listening to mummy for nine months by the time baby appears, all right, 280 days later. So I always tell, to da tell dads, say, talk to little baby in the tummy so the baby knows you as well. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, John the Baptist was so excited when Jesus appeared that he leapt, leapt with excitement and, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, and this is what I wanted to show to you. So if we just look at this slide, Elizabeth then spoke to Mary and this is what she said. And remember that she has just been filled with the Holy Spirit. 
she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, but why is this granted unto me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Just say that last little bit again. Why is this granted, says Elizabeth, who's prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit, why is this granted unto me that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? Now, just think about it. Baby Jesus is two weeks old, and Elizabeth is now addressing baby Jesus as my Lord. Which is what we all do now. But baby Jesus was addressed as my Lord when he was two weeks old in the womb. Now, that's very profound, isn't mm -hmm. it? That's a very profound thing. Um, we could enlarge on that and talk about other things, but we're not going to. We're going to keep this about Christmas. But just remember that little, little babies in the womb are little children. All right? Now, on this occasion, this wasn't any ordinary child. This was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth re referred to this little baby as my Lord. Derek, would you like to make any comment on that? Well, as you say, it, it, it does show that uh, Jesus at this point wasn't just a potential person. He was a real person. <laughs> yes. But also in calling them him Lord, you know, this is again saying, yeah, this is the Messiah. This is the Lord. She knew that. And... Um, because in Isaiah 9, for example, the prophecies of the Messiah are consistent. You know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Mm. Yes, he would be a human child, but also he's the eternal son of God that is given to mankind mm. by God. And, and his name will be called Wonderful, which means miracle worker, counselor. In other words, he'll be a great teacher. Mm. You know, um, the mighty God, El Gibor. Mm. That's mm. a title for God, the mighty mm. God, mm. Uh, the Prince of Peace and the Father or the Source of Everlasting Life. These are divine titles. So the Messiah who is to become, who is to be born as a man, is also God. Mm. And therefore, he's not just a great man, he is Lord. Mm. He's the Lord God. And mm. so we have the, this amazing mystery of the incarnation being revealed here. God manifest in the flesh. Mm. God taking on himself a human nature. Mm. you know and going through every process of human life including being conceived and being born in, in the womb right. and yet he, he is Lord even then fantastic praise God well that's, that's fantastic so now we can really can we agree on one thing that we can really celebrate Christmas because the word became flesh mm. in January um, and this was not just any ordinary person, this was my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived in January 2 BC, and we can, we can celebrate this with a clean conscience, and we're excited about it. I love Christmas time. We've got all the family coming. I hope you've got lots of family coming too. We're going to have a wonderful time at Christmas, and I want to wish everybody, all the viewers now, a wonderful Christmas. And don't forget what Christmas is all about. It's not about tinsel and fairy and fairies on Christmas trees. No, it's about the celebration of the coming of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and live with us, to tabernacle amongst us, and then later to die for us so that we can go to heaven. And by the way, I'm sorry, I must put a bit of an advert in here, but I'm very excited about heaven because I've interviewed over 300 people who've died and they've been brought back to life again. 
<laughs> so I'm putting a bit of a little plug in here, but I am excited about heaven because I'm an evangelist, all right? And heaven is the most fantastic place. Mm. And uh, if you get onto my website, which is freechristianteaching.org, that's freechristianteaching.org, you can see a couple of movies we've made with the Hollywood, Hollywood film director, all about what heaven is like. And you can, uh, you can download a couple of books uh, to of, of real people who have uh, died and been to heaven. Now, how do they? Uh, uh, that's just a little bit of a thing. A thing you might be interested to get onto our website, freechristianteaching.org. It's all free. Um, but how do those people get? Um, how how am I going to get to heaven? How's Derek going to get to heaven? How's my lovely wife going to get to heaven? Derek, would you like to have a comment? How anybody can get to heaven? Well, it goes back to the Christmas story, I think, that throughout the ages, man kn has known that there's a problem, that he's not connecting with God, he doesn't know God, he knows he's not right with God, and rightfully he's, he's fearful of judgment, knowing his own sinfulness, knowing his own, doesn't live up to his own standards, let alone God's standards. And, and so, in trying to make up for that, he's tried to climb, as it were, the ladder to heaven, he, he's, uh, we, we might call it religion, yeah. uh, is, is man's works, his prayers, his whatever he can conjure up to impress God, to earn enough points that God will let him into heaven. And of course, all of this is futile. This could never satisfy God's. God's, God's standards of perfection. We, we could never uh, climb that infinite gap between us and God and, and get to heaven. And, and so it really starts by us realizing uh, really, humility, mm. that we cannot save ourselves. Mm. We, we can't, we, no, no matter of good works can possibly uh, save ourselves. And, and the miracle, if you like, of Christmas is, is this thing, isn't it, that although we couldn't climb that ladder to heaven, we couldn't make it to God, but God came down to us. God became a man. That's what marks Christianity out as different from all the other religions. It's not us trying to get to God. It's God coming down and being born as a man, identifying with us, taking our sins upon himself, representing us before God, and on the cross, cutting a blood covenant between man and God, him being our representative before God. And when he was accepted by God in the resurrection, God declared him accepted praise God, then we who choose to be in Christ uh, come into this new covenant with God through his blood and we can have salvation, we can be forgiven, we can have eternal life. And it's just up to us to say, yes, I accept God's gift to me through Jesus Christ. I accept his death for me. I believe that he's raised it from the dead for me and I accept him. And you know, that great moment when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart to be your Lord and your Savior, and, you, and, and God gives you the faith. I believe if you have an open heart and you say, God, is this true? God will show you. And when you make Jesus your Lord and you accept him, he comes in by his spirit and he'll change you from the inside out. He'll forgive your sins and he gives you the gift of eternal life. And I can testify that that's true. That's changed my life. And uh, it's given me an eternal purpose, an eternal destiny. Mm. And, and that's what Christmas really is about, that God has come to man mm. in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we will put our faith in him, you know, we can have what he came to give us, that eternal life with God and heaven.
Wow, mm. isn't it going to be great? Oh, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be absolutely <laughs> wonderful. We haven't got time to go there now, but I am so excited about heaven. I wanted to, at some stage, not this program, but another time, just talk just yeah, about heaven. Because be I've, I've actually interviewed over 300 people who've died, yeah. and a lot of those have been to heaven. And the, mm. the, the stories that they told me have inspired me to write three books on the subject and make a couple of movies. And basically, it's the most exciting place. I can't wait to go to heaven. But anyway, there we are. <laughs> so just remind me, which year was it you became a believer in Jesus? Oh, uh, I think it was 1978. Okay. So what we're going to do now <coughs> is we're going to actually give uh, Derek just a very brief uh, little rest and change to our other guest, who's actually my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so bless our little heart. Um, when did this happen to you, uh, Val? When did this happen to you? This happened to me uh, when I was 27, which is about um, 1979. Right. I'll bet you by year. Yeah, by year, yes. Okay, I know, we, I know it happened to both of us together. Yes. And uh, can you remember the circumstances at the time, vaguely, what happened? Well, yes, um, we were a, a typical professional uh, family and uh, we were making a home. Um, we were the typical... Um, we were having children and we were setting up home, but we both knew that we, something was missing out of our lives. There was a great emptiness. And um, through a, a relationship crisis in the family, um, we were introduced to a lady called Anna, who was a committed Christian. And we took it upon ourselves to go and see her because we were curious and we knew that we were looking for something. We thought maybe this was it. So we went to see her, and um, she gave us the gospel straight down the line, didn't mince her words, and uh, so we took it all in, and we, we went home and we thought about it, because frankly, it was, it was such a big commitment. We didn't want to um, do anything on the spur of the moment without considering the implications, which were huge. So we did go away and we thought about it. And during that period, um, Richard and I went to see The Exorcist. And uh, <clears throat> as we went in, there were some people from the local Baptist church handing out leaflets to say, if you are disturbed by this film, um, to ring up the number for help. And I very arrogantly cast it aside and said, well, I won't be needing that, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. But anyway, during the film, I was overcome by a fear that I'd never um, experienced before. It was totally all-encompassing, and I fled the theatre, <laughs> went back home, and um, within a couple of days, I had committed my life to God because I thought, well, if Satan is that real, then God has to be real mm. too, and if he's out there... That's the side I want to belong yeah. to. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so that's how it happened. And thank you. And can you tell the viewers, I mean, it was a very radical conversion for both of us, actually. It happened more or less at an identical time, within the same 24-hour period. But it did actually had dramatically changed our lives. And could you tell the viewers a little bit what our early life was like, what our house was like, with all these people coming and going, and how many churches we had in our house? Well, yes, well, when um, Richard and I got saved, we were, I would like to say that we were radically saved and um, we trod where f angels fear to, quite honestly, and uh, we wanted to tell the whole world 
in fact, to anybody who would listen. And we probably, um, we probably got rid of a few friends, I think, <laughs> in this period. <laughs> but we knew who our friends were. And um, extraordinary things happened in our home. We went from, we actually presented ourselves at a local church and um, announced that we were born again. And they said, well, terribly sorry, but we don't have those here. <laughs> and we wandered from church to church trying to find a home and eventually set up a house church in our own home. And um, actually we set one up and it's still going strong today in our hometown. It's a big church. and we played host to another couple of house churches as well during that time. So it was a very busy period, it wasn't it? It was a very busy <laughs> period and we had all sorts of people knocking at our doors, um, asking nuns, um, knocking at our doors, asking if they could be baptised in the Holy Spirit and we said, yes, come in and we'd be delighted to pray with you. And uh, there were all sorts of really, truly wonderful things. It was probably at the height of the charismatic movement. And we did have a lot of quite well-known speakers who visited our house, which got quite well-known, didn't it? We did, we did, <laughs> yes, yes. That was back in the 70s and 80s. But anyway, but before we get on to Hanukkah, which I want Val to talk about Hanukkah, because it's very much closely related to Christmas, uh, I want Val to just tell us about her amazing miracle when she went blind in her left eye. Well, I'd like to tell you that we do worship um, a very powerful and um, healing God. And I'd like to say, Derek, that um, God is obviously into healing rheumatoid arthritis yes. because I've also been healed from rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis. But um, probably uh, one of the things that had the most profound um, effect on me was 11 years ago I suffered a, a central retinal vein thrombosis which in layman's term is a clot behind the eye and I was told by the doctors if it had happened a little bit further in I would not be here today to tell the tale. Um, <clears throat> the doctors told me that it was irreversible, that I would never, I lost the sight in my left eye, that I would never see out of my left eye again. And it was quite a sort of devastating um, diagnosis. So I thought, okay, well, either I believe what man says about me, or I believe what the Bible says. And the Word of God clearly says that I'm healed. By his stripes you were healed. God mm. hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a healing God. And I knew in my spirit that he was going to heal me. Mm. And so Richard and I delved into scriptures and we got out all the healing scriptures we could lay hold of. And we read them out and we prayed over them um, and I decided that I was going to stand on God's word and that my eye was going to be healed and all right I didn't see out of my left eye yet but one day I would and for until it happened I was standing on God's word. I went back for um, examinations with the doctors at frequent intervals because they were very interested in it actually because 
I was an unusual patient. I wasn't in the right age bracket. I didn't have diabetes. I didn't have high blood pressure. And they had no answers to why it had happened to me. So they took photographs of my eye and they invited all the medical students in to come and have a look-see. And for nine months, uh, the eye condition remained the same. And then one day, I knew that I had received my healing. When I went for my next examination, I was asked to read an eye chart, which I read perfectly. Went in to see the consultant, and he said, Mrs. Kent, he said, have you been cheating? <laughs> so I said, no, I haven't, but I am quite familiar with the eye charts by now. So he said, hmm, then I think we'll give you a new one. So he put up a new eye chart, and I read it without any problem at all. He didn't make any comment, but he hooked me up to the machine that looks at the back of your eye, called in all the students and all the other doctors in the department and said, right, here we have a photograph of Mrs. Kent's eye with the central, central retinal vein thrombosis. I would like you to have a look at her eye now. So they were frankly dumbfounded because they, they had no answers as to why this had suddenly disappeared and I had received my sight. So um, I then asked God, why did this happen to me? Apart from the fact that I believe our faith is tested and needs to be tested, um, I received a scripture from John chapter 9 about the blind man who was healed. And, Jesus, and they asked Jesus, the disciples asked Jesus, who is, it, who is it that has sinned? Is it the man or his parents? And Jesus replied, neither. It is that the works of God be revealed. And I do believe that that was the reason that I can sit here today and give testimony to the wonderful healing power of our Heavenly Father. Mm. And I think I'm right in saying, well, I know I'm right in saying that you go and have an eye test about once a year, and, uh, and uh, very often they simply don't believe that you could possibly have had a, a retinal vein thrombosis. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. They look, um, obviously, they give my eye an examination, um, and I ask them what they can see, um, particularly behind the left eye, and they say, well, there's a small bit of scarring, and I said, oh, well, that's because I had a central retinal vein thrombosis. I usually have a different person to examine my eye each time. And they say, no, that simply couldn't be, because if that had happened, you wouldn't be able to see at all out hmm. of your left eye. Yeah. So there we are. We have a most wonderful testimony um, from Val about a, a healing. Of course, I can tell you many others, but we haven't got time now. But uh, now Val is very, very interested in the Jewish roots of Christianity, and it's a wonderful thing that she is. It's not my, it's not my specialty. <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested in it, but I'm, I have to be honest, I'm not terribly knowledgeable, but I am very interested. And I know Genesis, Revelation, TB are very, very interested in this as well. And they have a lot of um, pro-Israel speakers, and they even have uh, tours to Israel, which is wonderful. Um, but I wanted Val, because of her knowledge about Israel, to talk about Hanukkah. In fact, she's actually brought a Hanukkah, which we'll show you in a little while. But let, here's a picture on the, uh, of the Hanukkah, and I want Val just to talk us through Hanukkah and how Hanukkah is related to Christmas. So here you are, Val, if you'd like to talk to us, uh, 
Tell us all about Hanukkah. Well, um, the picture that you've got up on your screen is actually a Hanukkah, which is the name of the nine-branched um, candlestick. But it is um, around this time of year that um, Jews in Israel and all over the world um, will be celebrating Hanukkah, which um, this particular year, uh, year will start at 6 p.m. or the Shabbat, or the evening of the 11th of December, and it will continue for eight days. Um, Hanukkah was instituted um, during there is a, a period of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or if you like, um, the, it's 400 years between the last prophet Malachi and the next prophet who was John. And there is a silence that we don't have any scripture during that time, but it was during that time that uh, the Jews were actually very godless and um, a, a Syrian uh, ruler, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he had led a campaign against Egypt and Rome had ordered him to withdraw and so he took out his, his peak, if you like, against the Jews. And he went into Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. He ripped out all the temple artifacts and he put into the Holy of Holies a, a statue of Zeus or Jupiter. And he commanded the Jews to worship Jupiter. Well, this went on for a while, but in 164 BC, uh, a priestly family called the Maccabees led a revolt against um, the Syrians. And Judas Maccabees was um, pivotal in actually uh, leading a campaign and the Syrians were eventually ejected from Jerusalem and Judas Maccabees set about reconsecrating the temple and he uh, re-put, he threw out the, t uh, the statue of Jupiter and replaced the temple artifacts and in particular he put the menorah back into the temple. This was important for the Jews because the light that the menorah shed um, over Jerusalem and in the temple was a symbol of the fact that their God was the light to the world. Now there was only enough consecrated oil for one day's burning for the menorah, but they lit the candles anyway and by, um, or tradition has it, that by a miracle, this oil continued for eight days until new fresh oil had been consecrated. And so um, it is now celebrated at the Feast of Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah. We know from jo uh, John chapter 10 that he walked in the temple in Solomon's portico in the winter at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is what Hanukkah is called. Jews all over the world uh, will now celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. They will exchange presents and they will light this uh, nine-branched candlestick. I don't know if we can put this up to show. I've got a rather lovely little model here that I picked up in Jerusalem, actually on one of Derek's tours. 
and it has the uh, pomegranates here which are symbolic and it's got the nine candles eight days symbolizing the eight days of Hanukkah and this middle candle is called the Shamesh or the servant candle and it's this candle that is used to light all the other eight candles and so there we are, we have the Feast of Hanukkah, Festival of Light, Feast of Dedication. Mm. And I just want to concentrate on just this one slide here, Yes. because there's a date which I'd like you to comment on. Yes, in uh, 164 <coughs> BC it, the, it actually took place when the temple was um, re-consecrated, it took place on the 25th of December, 164 BC and the celebrations lasted for eight days. Mm. So there we have it, on the 25th of December. That's a familiar date to many of us. It isn't just about uh, Turkey and everything else. It's the fact that this, this Hanukkah was originally um, lit and it, the, um, to celebrate Christmas, the very first Christmas, if you like, um, for eight days. Is that right, Dami? That is right. Yeah, mm. right. So there we are, that's how Hanukkah fits into Christmas. So we've had so far, this is a Christmas program, so far we've had Derek telling us the exact day when Jesus was born and when Jesus was conceived and then how, he, how God became flesh and how he was addressed as my Lord and now we've seen how Hanukkah fits into the Christmas story and Hanukkah was first, the, the, um, Hanukkah was first lit on the 21st 25th of December, Christmas Day. So it's, we can celebrate Christmas with a clean conscience because there's a lot to celebrate. Um, it's an exciting time of year. Um, it's a, we can think about Jesus. And we, can, we can rejoice that God came to live with us um, around this time of year and we can truly rejoice at Christmas time. Would you agree with that, Derek? Absolutely. And um, it's the cleansing of the temple and the, and the bringing of the light into the world, you know, is 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 also speaking of what Jesus came to do, which was to, well, we that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, all these other mm -hmm. temples is pointing to this great reality that yeah. man is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you know we were worshiping false gods. And yes, praise God! And I think Hanukkah looks forward to the time that Jesus will come and cleanse our temple and and yeah. light us up from the inside, yeah. so that we are truly temples of of the living God. Right. Uh, I, we, I, I don't know if I can mention that um, actually at, at, at Oxford Bible Church this Sunday we've got uh, Stephen Pacht uh, from Jews for Jesus yes. and he's giving us a presentation on Hanukkah oh, really? uh, this Sunday, oh, yeah, wow. Sunday morning just so, say that uh, again, make sure all the viewers well, hear that again well, just in case, um, yeah. yes, he, uh, Stephen Pacht is um, he's coming, he's this coming to Oxford Bible Church this Sunday is that in the morning or the evening? yes, in the morning at 11 o'clock really? And oh, he's, well, um, I've never really heard a talk apart from Val here yeah. uh, on Hanukkah, so I'm looking forward mm. to hear that. That's Interestingly enough, if I could just interject, since uh, Derek brought it in, that um, <coughs> when Jesus comes again, he will be the light of the world. He will tabernacle amongst mm. us. At the time of Hanukkah, the Jews actually do sing the Hallel, which is sung at tabernacles, mm. and they also wave palm branches, which mm. happens at tabernacles. Right. So they are actually sort of preempting the fact that Jesus will tabernacle amongst yeah. us at that time. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. So we've had a, we've had an hour and a quarter on Christmas, 
But now we're very privileged because we've still got Derek here, and Derek really is a fund of knowledge on an enormous amount of stuff, because I have sat under his teaching for, for nearly 20 years, actually. And we're going to get him to talk about Israel. So I want to start off by asking you, Derek, when did you first become very interested in Israel? I know you take tours there a lot. Um, when Hillary and I got married hmm. um, on July the 4th, um, we both had it in our heart that we we would, as it were, go to Israel, a, a kind of pilgrimage for our honeymoon. Right. And, of course, July probably isn't the best time to go because it's so hot. Mm. But I suppose we, we always felt this was something we needed to do. And, and so we had our first trip to Israel. Of course, we didn't know where to go or what to see. We were winging it. But um, since then, I've been, you know, seven or eight times probably. Yeah. And I just love going. It, it, the Bible comes alive, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. just to see, you know, this happened here, this happened here, just to see how accurate the Bible is. And when you, you see the archaeology, you see the situation, it helps you visualize mm -hmm. and, and bring everything to life. Yes. And so I love to relate, you know, the, the Bible places to the Bible stories. And I think mm. it just helps one, the mm. Bible, to, to come out of the page and take on mm. three dimensions. <laughs> well, for any viewers who want to go to Israel, um, I thoroughly recommend anybody <coughs> to go to Israel if you, if you can. Uh, but Derek's a wonderful person to go to uh, with because we've been with Derek. We've actually been with many different uh, teachers as well. But... Derek's certainly one of the very best, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, can you tell us, Derek, I believe you've written a book on Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, I've, I've, I've recently done that. One of the places I love to take people by the Dead Sea right. is to what I believe are the remains of, of Gomorrah, the, um, the city that says was turned to ash right. by, a, by a supernatural judgment of God. And um, there are formations there by the Dead Sea that that answer to the five cities of the plain that were right. that were destroyed. Now many people think Sodom and Gomorrah is under the Dead Sea or something like that, but in the book I actually try to explain that um, from the clues given in the Bible right. that actually the, they're the, not the cities of the valley that the Dead Sea has now become, mm -hmm. um, but they're the cities of the plain surrounding the valley, so they should be seen on the shores of the Dead Sea, and there are clues in 2 Peter and Jude that that, that these cities could still are still to be seen, sure. and and Josephus writing in the time of Christ explicitly says that it says you can still see the traces or the shadows of these cities that were destroyed, right. and and you can go and see them, and so um, following the clues in the Bible, I kind of do the detective work, and kind of show that there are some unique formations by the Dead Sea. Yeah. That that actually fit the biblical description and the biblical locations for these cities right. very accurately, and and so it's a great demonstration mm. of the accuracy of the Bible, and most of all, mm. that God is a God who judges. We've we've talked about the love of God, mm. the salvation of God, the mercy of God, how He's reached out to us by becoming a man, but He's come to save us from judgment because. Mm. As, as sinners, we are under judgment. And sure. I think sometimes, because God has delayed his judgment, mm. to give us a chance to repent, to get right, he's, he's held his judgment back. But I think I'm afraid that so many people think, well, God's a softy, he'll never judge. Mm. You know, because he's so patient with us. We, Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, I would say, of 
uh, an exemplary judgment. In other words, God hasn't judged us all. I mean, people can live wicked lives and it seems like they get away with it. Mm. But in fact, judgment does await them. Mm. Um, nobody's going to get away with anything. Mm. Um, but God has done certain judgments in history as an example. Mm. Right. And Sodom and Gomorrah is, is one such example where God says, I want you to realize I will judge this world. In particular, I'll judge it with fire and brimstone. Right. You know, mm. the final judgment will be a judgment of fire. There, mm. There's a lake of fire, you know, and it talks about the fire and brimstone, or, which is sulfur. Right. And so um, you can see the evidence for that there by, by, by the Dead Sea. I, I love to take people down the streets of Gomorrah and, and see the buildings, see the formations and, and the sulfur balls <laughs> that, are, that are still there embedded in those formations which is, they were destroyed by burning brimstone, burning sulfur balls coming out of the heaven. Mm. And all I can say is that if you go to these places, it's exactly as you would expect mm. if this event actually did happen, sure. you know, 3,000 years ago. Well, 4,000 years ago, sorry, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got very good news for the viewers because, in fact, we have been with Derek to Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, we've got some photographs to show you and I'm just simply going to ask Derek to comment on them. Um, so here we go. Let's look at these. Uh, I don't know how much time we're going to have left. It's, uh, we, we're going to run for another... We've got 40 minutes, so I don't know how much of this we're going to get through, but we've got, we, potentially we can talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and the crossing of the Red Sea. We might even have time to talk about Mount Sinai. But anyway, let's start with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, by the way, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not trying to detract from Derek's excellent work, but um, in fact on my website, which is freechristianteaching.org, I've actually done a documentary on, on the archaeological sites, and I would like to put in a special thank you here to uh, Howard and Leslie Condor of this for making the facilities available for this documentary. You can go onto the website, freechristianteaching.org, and watch that documentary, which has got exactly the same material as we're just about to hear. Um, also, that I've got a, another friend called Simon Brown, uh, who makes free, de free movies, and he's made a, a, a movie about Sodom and Gomorrah as well, and that's also available to watch on the same website, Free Christian Teaching. Right, let's start, Derek, and I'm, I'm just going to let you just talk as you feel um, you want to talk about, about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll just see how we go. Well, the, um, the easiest one, of, there's, there are five cities that were destroyed, and um, Sodom being the largest, that's why it's always mentioned first, but the easiest one to get to and to see clearly is Gomorrah, the second largest one, which just happens to be right underneath Masada. So it's e mm. relatively easy to find mm -hmm. at the foot of Masada. And, and you can recognize it because the, ge the general landscape is, is brown, obviously. But these, f these uh, f places, which are city-sized areas of ash-like material, and they're much kind of white, white-gray ash, they stand out from the surrounding background. And you can see there the kind of white um, ash material and, and formations there. And that's a picture of Gomorrah. And there, of course, um, we have the, uh, you know, the Bible describes that they're des des destroyed by fire and brimstone, or literally burning sulfur balls coming out of heaven at high temperatures, changing the limestone buildings into this um, 
calcium sulfate type ash-like material that we find only in these specific locations by the Dead Sea. Mm. Right, well, would you like to comment on some of these pictures we're going to show, we're gonna go through? Yep. There, there you can see part of Gomorrah. Um, There's Masada now, above, isn't there? Yes, now the next one there is an aerial view. Mm. You're looking down, you can see Masada, and then you can see the color difference. You can see the white ash-like material at the foot of Masada. There's a clear mm. color difference there. They're definitely well-defined areas. Um, yeah. You can see uh, here, for example, these do not like look like natural formations to me. Um, you can see that's the shape of a of a building. There, you can see ziggurat type shapes. There's a conical ziggurat type shape. And on Gomorrah, there's a very flat platform that is like a temple fl uh, platform. And on that platform is a sphinx shape. There's also that conical shape. Here you can see uh, arch, an arch-type face, symmetrical shapes, uh, features like man-made buildings. And although it's, f of course, you expect over 4,000 years signs of erosion, um, yet there it's preserved enough to, to that this is this is man-made, uh, the remnants of man-made objects, even rooms that you can go into like this and arches. Uh, the cylindrical type shape building preserved there. Um, you also see the city walls. Now Canaanite city walls, as you can see at Jericho, are actually were well defended. They, there were two levels of defense you can see. The, the, the wall at the bottom and then a second wall higher up on top of the hill and a steep slope connecting. So to attack these cities you had to get past the first wall, then you're on a slope which makes you very vulnerable to the attackers on from the top wall. So this type of double city wall you can see in the formations, typical of Canaanite cities. And there's a artist's reconstruction there of what that would have looked like. You can see windows, as it were, in some of those walls. Um, yes, the uh, again you can see the color difference with the surrounding rock. Um, Ziggurats used to look like this, kind of a square-type pyramid, worship centers, and you can see the ziggurat-type shapes there at Gomorrah. Mm. Uh, very distinctive, and t t it's quite spooky as you walk mm -hmm. d down past these buildings. You realize what happened 4,000 years ago. God turned the, this whole area to ash, it says. It's an ash-like material. Well, that's uh, what the Sphinx is, a very common object. They're guardians of, uh, of, the, of the city, often at city gates. At, um, and so you can compare that to what's of a Sphinx-type object there at Gomorrah. Um, and, and there's another one. There's another Sphinx. You can see Masada there in the background, a very distinctive sphinx-type shape um, there. And these, these sphinxes are positioned near the city, city gates. There's a, there's a great picture again. You can see a conical-type building. Again, you have to judge for yourself, but again, I would say, what would you expect after 4,000 years? You would expect f formations, ash-like material. It, that ash just crumbles in your hand. It's condensed uh, ash-like material. It, the, the, the formations, because of their density, have held their shape. But 
you hop, take a bit of it into your hands, it crumbles. It's just like ash. Um, you can see charcoal in in some some of those areas. Um, but uh, the most important thing is uh, is these sulfur balls. I think if it was just formations, it would definitely you know it would be hard to judge it one way or the other maybe you'd say it's just a coincidence that these formations are by the Dead Sea where the Bible says they should be but to me what proves it to me are these sulfur balls when you go there especially if it's just rained recently you can find sulfur balls embedded in the ash everywhere and this is a form of sulfur that's unique um, to these five spots unique in the earth sulfur you can Thank find you. elsewhere but not in this form of spherical balls the fact that they're spherical means they've come down through the atmosphere and uh, they've come down and there's evidence that they've been burning at high temperatures coming down through the atmosphere and these sulfur balls are embedded now that isn't that a strange thing that the five cities of the plain the bible talks about were destroyed by burning brimstone and you can find five areas of ash-like air material that also have embedded within them the remains of God's weapons, you might say, God's instruments of judgment, these burning sulfur balls. And of course the original sulfur balls would have been much bigger. And that what we can pick out, and perhaps I should show this now, uh, we actually have one here that uh, Richard and Val have, and you can, this is uh, quite well preserved. And here you can see this is pure sulfur. We won't burn it because it will stink out the studios and we'll get into trouble. But this is p practically pure sulfur. And these are there's millions of these embedded in the ash-like material of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and, and so when I take a group there, they become obsessed with finding as many sulfur balls as they can. And they often forget about everything else. <laughs> but uh, on the last trip, we collected about 50 sulfur balls, as an example there. And, um, y you know, it's quite pure sulfur. There's another sulfur ball, again, embedded in the crust. And sometimes you can see the burn rings that are surrounding uh, those uh, that material. And so what happened was the sulfur balls came, burnt up the embedded uh, that material, turned it to calcium sulfate type ash material, and then when the, its oxygen supply was cut off, then it burnt out, and leaving a remnant of that sulfur pool. But ar around it is a crust material that formed from the liquid material, that, and, and there are burn rings around often as well. So we know it was the result of burning sulfur. Mm. There's a burn ring, you can see very well there, the sulfur ball surrounded by the burn ring, which shows that it came burning brimstone, just like the Bible says. I think I'm right in saying that that burned at a very high temperature. Extremely right? high temperature, yes. And there must have been a massive quantity, because when you actually measure the sulfur content of... Um, and, I, and uh, I'm very grateful for the research that Leonard Muller has done yeah. on this. Uh, as a scientist, he's done some chemical research. Yeah, I bet you'd like to mention you, his book. Oh, well. Um, I found, in doing my book, I found this book very helpful, The Exodus Case. It's mostly about the Exodus, the Red Sea Crossing, and Which Mount Sinai. But he also has a very helpful section in there on Sodom and Gomorrah.
Mm. And so Dr. Leonard Muller has written a very good book there. Mm. But he uh, points out that the, sulf the general sulfur content in the ash is such that um, it's much higher than, than the normal region. And so an enormous quantity of sulfur actually came down. And, and when you take into account the amount that's given off in sulfur dioxide, the amount that was formed into the calcium sulfate, and then there's a lot of just pure sulfur there, an enormous quantity of burning sulfur came down at high temperatures, mm. sufficient to actually, God, as it were, targeted these cities and turned them into this ash-like material. Mm. And perhaps you'd like to comment on this. We, we did this when we were with you, burning a... Actually, pretty yes. Up. Well, uh, <laughs> if, if you if you if you burn it, do uh, do not burn it inside because it smells. <laughs> it really stinks. But sulfur, it burns, and you know it's sulfur because the horrific smell it gives off. Yes, it certainly does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a scripture there. I don't know if you'd like to comment on that. If you could read it out for me, I'll be grateful. Yeah, 2 Peter <laughs> 2, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. It's just like you were it's talking interesting about Interesting there. When it talks about an example, this is a visual aid, a, a warning. Mm. And that's why I believe God has preserved these areas, because it stands as a visual warning that it was not just a one-off judgment. It was a one-off judgment, but it's a warning of that God will judge the wicked. Mm. God is no respecter of persons. Mm. If he judged the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm. will he not judge all those who have turned against God mm. and, 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 re and reject his yeah. salvation? And, and so it's a visual reminder that God will not put up mm. with sin forever. There comes a time when God says, it's time to judge. And so it is a, it is a warning to, to the world, really, that there is a judgment coming. Mm. And we need to take ad advantage of mm. his mercy that he gives us a chance now, while we're alive, to turn to him, to turn to God, mm. give our heart to God. Uh, because w after we've died, yeah. or judgment comes, it'll be too late. Yes. Now, just coming back to this book, if you'd like just to look at this slide just for a moment, um, Derek and I and Val know Leonard Muller. Um, in fact, Leonard Muller has actually spoken in Derek's church, and we went to listen to him. And of course, he's uh, he's actually stayed in our house as well. In our house as well, and he's written this book. You know, some people um, don't take Sodom and Gomorrah very seriously, but they jolly well should do. And I'll tell you why is because this book wasn't just written by Leonard Muller. It was actually written by seven specialists, of, of which Dr. L Leonard Muller is just one. Dr. Leonard Muller himself is a professor at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, but also he consulted Dr. Man Manfred Bitek, who's an Egyptologist professor in the University of Vienna. He consulted an Professor Ken Kitchen, who's an e Egyptologist, emeritus professor, University of Liverpool, Dr. Eber During, an archaeo can't say that word, <laughs> uh, from, from the research laboratory in Stockholm University in Sweden, Professor Alan Millard, ranking professor of Hebrew and ancient Semitic languages, University of Liverpool, England, Rabbi Manas Friedman, biblical scholar, lecturer, author, worldwide renowned author, council lecturer and philosopher, and Dr. Gregor Hodgson, Hodgson, marine biologist, visiting professor at University of California, Los Angeles. Well, there you go. There's seven world-renowned 
well famous uh, people who all say this is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not, um, I believe it's Sodom and Gomorrah, Derek believes it's Sodom and Gomorrah, Val believes it's so Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's not all. There are seven world-famous people who say this is Sodom and Gomorrah, so I think we need to take this quite seriously actually. And the good news is um, we've got some more, because we've got Derek here, we've got some more slides to show you, because uh, uh, Derek also took us down to Egypt, to Nuweba Beach. I don't know if you're happy to talk about this, to uh, talk about the time when you took us to Nuweba Beach and talk about the, the crossing of the Red Sea. So talk about these slides now. Well, this is all kind of tied up with um, the issue of where Mount Sinai is, of course, which um, I know there are slides later on that, but basically you have to locate Mount Sinai first. Yeah. And the Bible actually says that it's in Saudi Arabia, Galatians 4. Yeah. And basically, that's Midian, you see. That's where Moses had his, uh, looked after his sheep. That's where the burning bush would have been. And so, unfortunately, we've been bound by tr church tradition that mm. it's in what we now call the Sinai Peninsula. Mm. We, it's only called that now, you see, but actually the original Mount Sinai, the evidence really is that it's in Saudi Arabia. And so there are two forks to the, to the Red Sea that you can see. We know that it cr he, you know, the, the Red Sea crossing was the Red Sea. It's always been assumed it's the Gulf of Suez, but no evidence has been found there, and so people often dismiss the story or make up variations. It actually says that um, the Red Sea crossing was at Yam Suf, is, is the Hebrew word and when that's studied carefully and I've, I've read a study on this it is actually a specific description not of the Gulf of Suez but the Gulf of Aqaba right. and so people have been looking at the wrong place right. of course when you cross the Gulf of Aqaba then you come into Saudi Arabia right. and that's where the real Mount Sinai is and uh, we, we may show proof of that later if there's time but that means the Red Sea crossing it needs to be across the Gulf of um, Aqaba, and the only place where that could really be, uh, well, I believe with a, that has a large beach capable of taking the you know the two million people um, that fits the story perfectly, is 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 a place called Nueva. That's right. And um, we'll probably see that on on the, on the slide in a I'd minute. I'd like you to comment on this scripture actually in Galatians mm. four twenty five. It says, yes. "For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia." Well, there you go. You see. Uh, it's it's because of Constantine's uh, mother, who oh. who decided that Mount yeah. Sinai was w the traditional Mount Sinai now, yeah. but I think there's there are many reasons why it couldn't be the real Mount Sinai. Um, again, it's based on the assumption I think that yeah. the Sinai Peninsula, the Sinai, uh, the Gulf of Suez is is where they crossed over, but in fact this whole Sinai Peninsula was under Egyptian control. So to escape Egypt, they actually had to cross over the Sinai Peninsula. It says they didn't go the way of the Philistines, but instead they headed towards the Gulf of Aqaba there. And at that point, they crossed over. It looked like they were trapped. Well, the pictures will show it. Pharaoh even said that they're entangled in the mountains, and yeah. the approach to the beach actually is exactly like that. They're entangled in the mountains. There is no such place in at the Gulf of Suez, but as you go through the Wadi Watir, you're actually, they would have felt trapped in the mountains. They must have been wondering, what's Moses doing? What's God doing? We're, we're trapped here. And then as they come up against the actual sea, with Pharaoh chasing behind them, 
they would have they would have felt absolutely trapped and panicking mm -hmm. and and of course god it was actually a trap that god had set <laughs> for pharaoh who was actually trying to commit genocide on on the israelite people we might feel sorry for pharaoh and his army but we've got to realize that he was actually wanting to take revenge and completely destroy these mm. escaping slaves and and so god uh, god brought them to that place and actually it was a trap for pharaoh god did one of the great miracles of the bible but that's what it would have seemed like as we 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 did that didn't we we went up this wadi a few miles mm. oh a long and, way and we, quite, quite a, long, a way. long way i i wondered how far it would go and in the end we had to turn back mm. again uh, our driver wondered who was egyptian wondered what on earth we were doing but um, <laughs> But we experienced what it would have felt like with these high mountain mm. ridges on each side as these two million people channeled through here. Pharaoh actually says, I've mm. got them trapped. Mm. They're entangled in the land. They can't escape. Mm. And, uh, and it, Pharaoh was catching them up all the time. Mm. There they are on the seashore. Mm. It looks hopeless, you know. And then, of course, and there's the beach at Nueva. There's plenty of room there for the two million people. They come onto the beach and it looks hopeless. But God had prepared a way. Uh, it says God prepares a way for us. We may not see the way God has prepared, but God has prepared a way for us through the waters. And uh, it, it just so happens that at that point, there's a land bridge under the water because actually the Gulf of Aqaba there is very deep. Um, so that even if God would have removed the water, so deep generally is the Gulf of Aqaba, it would be far too steep for them to go down. But at that specific point, it's relatively shallow and passable. And so God prepared a way where there was no way. He prepared a way for them to cross. And so when the waters were divided, it says the waters were congealed, which means that wind caused the waters to freeze. And they stood, as it were, like walls of ice. And they were able to just walk through. Mm. And of course, God prevented Pharaoh from following by, by the darkness. And of course, as the burning fire went through behind them, that wall of fire that melted the ice again, so that when it was Pharaoh's time oh, to chase, nice. uh, the waters collapsed upon him. Yeah. And of course, we would expect to see evidence of that, physical evidence. That's where they crossed at Nueva, I believe. If that's true, we should find chariot wheels, we should find evidence. One evidence is a pillar that was found. Uh, in fact, a pillar like this was found at both sides, on the, the Saudi side as well. And on, and that's the one on the Saudi, the Saudis removed it and put a flag in its place. On the uh, Egyptian side is, is that pillar, which you can go and see today, it's, it's right there. And um, the, one, the one on the Saudi side uh, um, the person who originally found it said that it had Hebrew inscriptions on Would you like me to read the actual uh, words? Yes, please. It's actually an, an ancient Hebrew, and this is the English meaning of it. It actually says Solomon, Yahweh, Moses, Mizraim, which is Egypt, Pharaoh, Death, and Edom. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. That's a very important number there. So Solomon, it looks like the column was erected by King Solomon to commemorate the, tame, the time when Yahweh, the God of the universe, uh, caused Moses to lead the children of Israel away from Mizraim, which was Egypt, uh, where they were under uh, the curse of death, under Pharaoh, to Edom. 
That's what it's, if that's, that's what I believe this is saying. So um, that's my interpretation of it. Is, but anyway, there's no question that's what that was what was originally found on the uh, column on the eastern bank. Am I right there? Uh, yes, um, that's right. Yeah. And, and so it was that confirms all the other clues you might yeah. say that the Red Sea crossing took place there. It, it fits the biblical description that they, there are mountains on both sides. Mm. There was a suitable land bridge, but the Bible also talks about them crossing the great deep. And the Yamsuf, as I said, is the Gulf of Aqaba. Mm. Um, we know that from, from descriptions from Solomon's time of the Yamsuf. And so people have gone diving, and uh, they have found uh, evidence of chariot parts chariot wheels, sometimes some very clear chariot wheels have been uh, found, uh, parts of chariots, uh, some often protected, they've been corralled over and that's helped to protect them. Um, there you can see a fairly clear chariot wheel. There was the chariot wheel there. Now there's a golden one that's particularly interesting, um, but anyway you can see different chariot parts there. Of course, it's very hard to dive and, and to discover, you know, these things, but there is there is evidence of human re human remains, uh, yeah. horse horse remains, bones, uh, exactly consistent to what you would expect um, from the Bible story. And that's an interesting picture because that's actually I don't know if you can see that's a rusted iron axle. Mm. <laughs> Right. So that's a chariot axle that's been down there for yeah. how, how many? How long ago was it now? Well, that's I, I reckon that's about fifteen hundred B BC. Really? Mm. So uh, yeah, three thousand five hundred years. So that's a human femur. That's a thigh bone preserved in coral. It, it's it's hard to f to to look the other side because it's Saudi Arabia, and of course, yeah, it's not allowed to no, to not. study. So no. the, the 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 place where probably most of the stuff is 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 even is out of uh, out of range. I understand that. Um, a skeleton. That's actually a human rib cage on rib the left cage. there. And here's, would you like to comment on that golden Yes, well, chair? Th this is the most interesting one, I suppose, is that it can't, it can't be moved because it'd be very fragile, but because it was gold, um, this golden wheel is very clear, isn't it? And only probably it might even have come from Pharaoh's chariot because who would have a mm. golden wheel chariot, not your mm. normal mm -hmm. guy? Possibly that is from because we are told that Pharaoh was killed hmm. in that uh, was the end of um, his dynasty. He got killed, and uh, that could well be the chariot wheel from Pharaoh's chariot. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep, that certainly sounds like it. There it is. There's again. a close-up of that chariot yes, wheel. Yes, there it is again. That's yeah. very clear. And there's it? there's a horse's hoof actually. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't think you can read that writing, so I'll read it for mm. you. Uh, Dr. Nassif Mohammed Hassan is the director of the Egyptian Antiquities Authority and he explained that the eight-spoke wheel was from only the 18th dynasty, which was in approximately 1446 BC, the time of Ramesses II and what he called Tutmosis, and we of course call Moses. So there you have uh, um, another totally different yeah. source saying that this is... That wheel was removed and given to the... Yeah. To the museum there, yes. yeah. And again, we have uh, Dr. Lamb books and, and, and his book and all these uh, famous places, uh, sorry, famous people saying that this really is the real place. Now look, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left. 
would you like to take us on a whistle-stop tour of Mount Sinai? <laughs> Why not? In for a penny, in for a pound. Huh? <laughs> All right, well, here we if, go. If that, the two are connected, you see, and people have been able, although it's very hard to get into Saudi Arabia, there's a particular couple who was able to get in, the Caldwells, and they were working there, and they took a lot of tremendous footage from Saudi Arabia. If we can go back to the, the, the a previous one that shows the blackened peak. Now, again, that's consistent with the... High, you know, it says that God came down on Mount Sinai as mm. a consuming fire. Well, there is a blackened peak there. It's called Jebel El Laws, the, called mm. the Mountain of the Law, and uh, and it is consistent with, you know, something that's been formed under high temperatures, right. and uh, one of the the holy places. Now, Mount Sinai is in is in Saudi Arabia, and uh, this makes all kinds of sense. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, archaeological evidence that that is not at the traditional Mount Sinai that confirms this this really is Mount Sinai. Um, if we go on there, again, the Exodus route takes you across to the Gulf of Aqaba into Midian, hmm. and that's where Mount Sinai is, Jebel El Laws. Yeah. Uh, they found quite a lot Which of, of evidence. Which, of course, is Arabic, there. isn't it? Jebel El Laws, I believe, is that's Arabic. That's the name of it. In Arabic, the Mountain of the Law. That's right. And uh, also the locals, Jebel Musa, the, the Mount of Moses. Yes, because of course Muslims also believe in Moses, don't they? That's right. So yeah. Jebel Musa. So right. the, they believe it's, uh, they're right. They, it there's is. evidence around the mountain that there were many people that occupied the land around. Yeah. And it could support two million people around there. Um, it says here on the slide that the granite has been burned into what's called obsidian, which is a molten glass product caused by extreme heat. Mm. And uh, it'd be difficult for you to read that slide, so I'll read it for you. It says in Exodus 19, verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So that's presumably when that obsidian was made. Yeah. Again, it's consistent. Now, another wonderful com confirmation, we just saw the split rock. You, if you read the story in Exodus 17, it yeah. talks about a, a, a great moment where they're near Mount Sinai, and the, but they have no water. And so it talks about Moses taking his rod and striking the rock, and suddenly out of that rock gushes the water. And so we call it the split rock there Horeb is, is right there, you can see it, and there's evidence of water channels, uh, of the water that gushed out to give water to Israel. Of course, this, it talks about, in the New Testament, the rock, this rock is a picture of Christ, and you see God, as it were, struck with his rod, Christ on the cross, he struck him for us, and out of, the, of, out of Christ flows the, that living water that is for our salvation. And, and so this is a wonderful picture of Christ here. And here you can see the water channels, the erosion of the water coming out of this split rock. So again, the true Mount Sinai should have a split rock like this. Um, and there it is uh, in the vicinity of Mount Sinai. And uh, um, that is actually take a photograph taken from the top of Mount Sinai. And actually there's a well there, which presu presumably must have been dug by the original children of Israel. Yes, so they yeah. would have needed to do that, yeah. yes. Nearby as well is, a, is this big altar, which could well be the Jehovah Nisi altar. Mm -hmm. um, but right. uh, there's a lot of, now, 12 pillars. It says that they, 
they constructed a pillar for each of the twelve tribes, and you can find the pillars there. There, there they are. Mm. Um, it's all fascinating. There's stuff. an altar nearby where the battle Jehovah Nisi took place. Now, also very interesting is the golden calf altar because there's this great um, altar area where where petroglyphs were engraved with uh, Egyptian-looking, you know, bulls and and, mm. and cows, which course is very unusual for Saudi Arabia they didn't yeah. it's the Egypt these are Egyptian symbols so what are they doing in Saudi Arabia yeah. of course when Israel backslid when Moses was up the mountain they of course started they made it this golden bull That's they right. kind of reverted to the Egyptian form of worship and and of course on the altar there uh, there are these markings so again tremendous consistency with the Bible story absolutely and I didn't realize that until you pointed it out to me that, in fact, uh, they, they weren't just making any old bull, that they were, in fact, um, building a, a, like a, what do you call it? A, they were building um, the Egyptian god Apis and Hathor. That's what they were actually doing, because in Cairo University, this is what you can see, the Egyptian god Apis and Hathor. Um, there's the god Hathor in the ancient Egyptian agricultural museum. So they were actually uh, putting... At um, images, really, golden images, yes. and those petroglyphs, petroglyphs, I believe, are the images of the pagan gods in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. So sad, this is all confirmed. Story. <laughs> this is all confirmed again all by, and yes, this is it, actually it, out of out of uh, Dr. Leonard's book again, which you and I both got, um, and he confirms that this really is the real place. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a shame that this hasn't been more widely acknowledged. That, um, but tradition is strong, isn't it? And uh, yeah. it's hard to let go of tradition. But you know, even Bible atlases of a hundred years ago, some some of them did admit that really Mount Sinai should be in Arabia. That's yeah. where we need to look for it. And and when you when you do look where the Bible says it is, you find a place that 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 ticks all the boxes. Yeah. And uh, and then of course that tells you where the Red Sea crossing is. So. Sadly, you see, mm. what's happened is people mm. have said, well, there's no evidence, yes. mm. you know, for the Bible in the archaeology because mm. we've looked and we can't mm. find any remains mm. to... Mm. So it's all a myth. The problem is you're looking in the wrong place. <laughs> if you'll actually read the Bible, you'll find out where these things ought to be mm. and then you'll find that it really is there, whether yeah. we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, the Red Sea Crossing, Mount Sinai. Well, I've got some very good news for everybody. Uh, as I say, I already have made um, um, a documentary with Genesis Revelation TV, and it's entirely free. Uh, just get onto the website, freechristianteaching.org, and you can see that. And also another completely different from my work is Simon Brown's work, and he's produced uh, um, a documentary, a one-hour documentary on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there's some fantastic teaching available on... Uh, on Derek's wonderful website, which I've been on to many, many times, oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk. Um, so, Derek, we've had a wonderful time, and we've talked about Christmas, and we've talked about Hanukkah, and we've talked about uh, Hillary's healing of rheumatoid arthritis, mm -hmm. and we've talked about Val's healing of blindness, <laughs> and we've had some um, look at uh, some of your amazing work in Israel and the proof that, you know, the Bible is the truth. Um, so what are we left with? We're just left with the truth, and the good news is that Christmas time is a wonderful time when we can all celebrate Christmas. Mm -hmm. I, I want to thank you, and I want to um, 
just uh, tell the viewers something really interesting is that Derek and I are so excited by all this, we're actually going to make some movies next year with Simon Brown about all these archaeological discoveries um, with, you know, movie, proper, a proper movie, which uh, will be available free. Uh, so watch this space. Derek, have you got anything to say about that? <laughs> well, looking forward to it, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think uh, we, we need to let people see. I Not everyone can travel to Israel and see no. these things. No. But... Um, you know, it's great with modern technology now. We can it is. Bring the, it just brings the Bible to life. We mm. believe the Bible anyway, but these things increase our understanding of the Bible. Mm. And there's an excitement, and it helps us to share with others mm. to, to know that the Bible is true. And coming back to your Wednesday evenings on Revelation TV, I believe it's half past eight, is half that Half past eight on Revelation. And uh, have you, do you know what's going to be next week? The... Um, well, what's coming up soon, uh, I think, uh, let's see now, next week will be the March of Faith. Right. Which is a really interesting story of, of giving the keys of how God, uh, God's army is with us, mm. but w how do we activate God's army? How do we activate God to fight for us? And mm. that's in the story called the March of Faith. And then I'm talking about Israel after that, Israel the fig tree. And Hillary is is doing a message soon, and and I'm sharing on Daniel's seventy weeks, which I'm I'm really into at the moment, and and really giving some new insight on that, I believe, yes, and how it predicts uh, Christ's return and and many other other things. So now, um, some prophecy mm. material is coming up in the next month. Well, I'm very excited about all this. Um, I'm Derek and I believe we're living in the end times, yeah, don't you? Now we haven't gonna, we're not going to have time, unfortunately, to talk about end times today. Mm. It, it may be possible that uh, it may be possible that we may be able to talk to you on another occasion about end times because I know this is that one of your good. very, yes. very, uh, and we can, we've seen how, how very knowledgeable you are on Bible chronology anyway, and we've seen how knowledgeable you are on Israel, but I really would love to, to for the viewers to hear you talking about um, end times mm. because that, I know you've written many books and I've read them, and they're very powerful by the way, they're fantastic books actually, but we want to get the author to come and tell us about end <laughs> times because I believe we're in the end times. Yeah. So I want to thank you, Derek, for coming and sharing thank this today. I think it's been fantastically interesting for me. I don't want to thank my wife, Val, as yeah. well. Uh, Val, would you like to wish everybody a happy Christmas? <laughs> yes, uh, happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, Hanukkah. and uh, shalom to our Jewish listeners. So Christmas is a very exciting time of year. Um, I really enjoy Christmas. It's a family time, and you know, we're all born into the family of God. Um, you know, Revelation TV is described as the church without walls. Um, and it is a church without walls because the family of God has no walls. In fact, when you, know, when you go to heaven, I'll tell you something, when you go to heaven, uh, your home in heaven, <laughs> your home in heaven is made of jasper and it gives off rainbow colors. But I'll tell you what, there's no lock on your door because you're all in one family. Nobody's going to come and steal anything from your house because we're all in one family. Mm. But it's the same down here, isn't it, Derek? We're in one family, the family of Jesus. Now, it just happens down here that I'm married to my lovely wife, Val. Well, I think she's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm her biggest fan. But actually, um, I'm closely related through faith uh, to Derek. Mm. Uh, uh, Derek and, and Hilary and Val and I are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm. And that's what Christianity is all about. Mm. Dave, would you like to make any comment about that? Well, about us all being a family. Mm. We're, uh, 
There's this saying, isn't there, that blood is thicker than water? Yeah. And that's been twisted because the way people think of that is yeah. blood family, you yeah. know, is is thicker than than any other relationship. But actually, it's what that's speaking of is those who are united through a blood covenant. Yes. And we are united if we put mm-hmm. our f- trust in Christ. Mm. We are in blood covenant with the Lord and under that same covenant with one another we are related by by true blood and so blood is thicker than water which is the water of our natural birth Mm -hmm. the water of our womb the womb so actually we are so close in god's spiritual family and with all those who listening who partake of the same grace of god Mm -hmm. through jesus christ So thank you everybody for joining us. We really enjoyed this evening here. I hope you've enjoyed it at home. And remember, this family that Derek's talking about, you're in it. (laughs) You're in this family. You're in the family of Jesus Christ. And we can celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to live with us. The Word of God became flesh to live amongst us so that we, he came and died for us, that we could go to heaven. We hope you've enjoyed this time. And actually, we've got another similar program in two weeks' time where we're talking to my own pastor, Roger French, and his lovely wife, Sue. So we look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time, and we hope to see Derek again very soon. God bless you, and thanks for, thanks for being with us. Have you got anything to say to the viewers, Derek? Well, God bless you. <laughs> and uh, just re- rejoice in the fact that God became a man for you because he loves you. And Val, would you like to say to the viewers as well? Well, it's been a great pleasure to be on tonight and to be part of this, and I've learnt so much from Derek. Uh, It's been an extraordinary evening, so thank you for having me. (laughs) We want to have you on again too. And from all of us, and from everybody at Genesis Revelation TV, a very, very happy Christmas to everybody, and God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.